Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features pianist, composer, and electronic artist Pascal LaBeouf. We hope you enjoy. Hello, hello, and welcome back to the Sound Weavers podcast. As always, I am your harping host, Rosanna Moore, and my wonderful and delightful co-host and partner in crime today is the delightful and wonderful Dr. Blair Kerner. Hello, Blair. How are you this fine and lovely day? It's really good to be able to talk to you. It's been a while since we've connected, so it's great to see you. It has been a while. (laughs) And today we have such an exciting guest. I am so so happy that we get to talk to this wonderful wonderful human but who are we talking to well he has been described as sleek new and hyperfluent by the new york times and i had to pick out this particular quote because it came from the rochester city newspaper pianist pascal labeouf is a 21st century renaissance man he's made inroads in the worlds of classical music indie rock and jazz So, without further ado, the amazing and wonderful jazz pianist and composer, Pascal LaBeouf. Hey, Pascal, how are you, my darling? Hi, Rosie. Hi, Blair. So nice to be with you today. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for letting us pick your brain. So, Blair, I think you are going to kick us off with some questions today. Yes. So, to get us started, how and when did you begin composing? Oh, man. Well, uh, taking it it way back, um, I started playing (laughs) piano when I was nine. Okay. And then um, um, I got interested in jazz because I liked to change the notes. (laughs) (laughs) And I didn't like to sight read notation. I ended up studying with a musician named Gene Lewis, uh, who played everything. He played jazz piano. He played lute. He sang. He he was (laughs) trained in Oxford and came to California and uh, taught at my sister's high school. And he was a really... um, important person in my early development and he he kind of opened up the doors to composing and I realized that a lot of the the music that I was learning on piano uh, was fun to kind of pick at and, and understand harmonically. I was really drawn to chords and, and understanding why things worked and so he really helped me with that but um, sadly he died when uh, I'd only been studying with him for a year or two. One of the ways that I got into composing early on was kind of trying to honor him. And it actually created a really beautiful place in my life uh, for dealing with difficult things and for Mm -hmm. honoring people around me through music, which I feel like still is a powerful thing about music for me today. It's 
so interesting listening to people who are honoring their teachers and how you bring that into uh, what you do going on. That's really well, I like to honor my friends too. I, I, and that's why we love you so much. <laughs> as we mentioned briefly earlier, you perform extensively as well as compose, mainly as a jazz pianist and also collaborating with your brother, Remy. Can you talk about the influence your performance life has on your compositions, especially as you're straddling the quote unquote new music and jazz realms? Yes, of course. Having having uh, grown up playing with a person with another person has kind of made uh, made me want to prioritize human relationships in mm-hmm. in my own musical experiences, but also in the musical experiences I set up for other people when I write for somebody or when I curate a situation basically for people to improvise or or play games in the music. I think it it comes back to to creating human relationships uh, for musicians to to kind of. Uh, engage with each other uh, in in different ways. My experience as a jazz musician, you know, uh, as a creative musician, I'm trying not to use the word jazz so much these days. Mm -hmm. Um, It gave me a window into a certain kind of uh, relationship with authenticity of feelings and how those feelings translate into music. Because let's say you're you're playing a jam session with your friends uh, or when you're trying to process your feelings in some way, Mm -hmm. I I think that there's something uh, deeply rooted in that music that is based in kind of expression of of those feelings and not necessarily even knowing what they are um, until until you're expressing them. When things are really um, happening uh, deeply, people are really deeply connected. It's like when you're having a conversation, you learn things about yourself, you learn things about the people around you, and you you experience this certain kind of uh, magic of music. Mm-hmm. Like there, you you reach this place, which I feel like is hugely motivating for a lot of musicians from from any genre or background or culture. I think that uh, for me, that experience as a performer has influenced kind of the, the experiences I try to create for other people. So reflecting back on what you just said, trying to use less of the word jazz, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, Rosie had mentioned straddling the quote unquote new music and jazz realm. So, you know, could you talk a little bit about that transition and why you're trying to just drive away from the quote unquote jazz um, label, I guess? Yeah, I mean, I think I think right now uh, as a society uh, with the Black Lives Matter movement, I, mean, I think we're all trying to come to terms with our relationship to to influence of of black american culture and kind kind of acknowledging it i think that uh jazz is a word that comes with some baggage i mean i think the etymology of the word even which I, i'm not going to go into right now is is kind of a tricky one um and i think a lot of musicians that i would consider friends of mine um, i've heard them not use it uh, with intention maybe subtly mm-hmm. so a lot of people don't don't think about it that much, too. I mean, I think majority of people will say jazz, and it's kind of what I'm used to doing, too. But um, but I think that it it also comes with a lot of uh, uh, expectations. You know, when yeah. you go to a jazz club, you expect it to be a certain kind of a thing, and and I think that it's maybe a time for us to to kind of break down those stereotypes a little bit, and for me to say that what I do is jazz is is maybe playing into those expectations in a certain way, and and maybe it's okay to to try to represent what I do as, as less of a stereotype and, and more of a, these are the people I'm making music with and these mm-hmm. are the things that we're doing in the music and you can call it what you want. 
document actually plays into discussions we've had with uh, other groups and other composers over the past few months. Oh, yeah. I, I noticed that you guys talked about some of these things with Michael Fraser in your podcast, yes. which I enjoyed mm-hmm. thoroughly. Oh, thank you for listening. Of course. <laughs> this podcast is all the rage. <laughs> so moving on to really exciting things. Uh, you have been a Grammy-nominated composer in the past, and you also have music up for consideration for the Grammys this year. Can you talk a little bit about um, the piece Imp in Impulse, which you wrote for the incredible Barbara uh, Kolarova from the Late George Music Festival, and... Certainly for me, I have no idea what the route to the Grammys looks like. I I have no idea how you get nominated, how you ask for people to support you. So can can you talk a little bit about the process for that? Of course. I think a lot of us would benefit from from getting more involved uh, in (laughs) in the Recording Academy. Um, I'll explain why. Um, Basically, uh, the Grammys are an award given by the the Recording Academy. You can become a member of the Recording Academy if you have certain credentials, or if you get nominated to join by somebody who is a member. I became a member because uh, I'd been making CDs for years. I think that uh, one thing I, I haven't talked about yet is just that I think of the life of a, of a composition as including uh, making a recording and, and sometimes even a video. That kind of put me on a path very early on to making records and and appreciating recording. So I got really interested in in the Recording Academy for this reason and realized that I could be a member and I did the paperwork and paid the fee and did all the stuff that I think a lot of musicians can do and they don't even realize it. Once you are a member, you can projects for consideration. And then there are multiple rounds where you can be nominated for a nomination and then you can be nominated and then you can, you know, go the, go to the Grammys and hang out with Snoop Dogg. And that's really cool. <laughs> hopefully, you know, you get one. For me, uh, going was a big surprise. I think I just the first time I tried nominating a project, I, I nominated a bunch of my friends and I also nominated one of my records. Um, with my brother, and it was a total, uh, total crapshoot. Had no idea what was going to happen, and I figured it, it wouldn't hurt. And then uh, it worked out for one of the submissions. Congratulations! Thank you. I do have to ask. This is an aside question that I didn't have written. For Infant Impulse, is there something written in the score that Barbara has to wear a different pair of shoes? Or is that just something that she is oh, doing? Oh yeah, let's talk about that. <laughs> oh please! I am so happy about this right now. <laughs> Oh, well, it was really just a dig at Barbora. You see, the thing is, whenever I take on a commission, I like to put something something funny in the contract so that it, it, people don't get too serious about it. <laughs> and uh, it's always different for every piece. And in this case, uh, I noticed that Barbora, being the artistic director at Lake George Music Festival, she had an office. Every time I would go by her office, I'd notice this big pile of shoes under the office. She was always changing her (laughs) shoes throughout the day. She was obviously really into shoes. And so I put in the contract that she had to uh, wear a different pair of shoes every time she performed the work. She liked that, gave her a professional excuse to to acquire more shoes. It actually uh, gave us a fun concept for our music video. So when we made a music video of the piece, every time the camera cuts, she's wearing a different pair of shoes. Yes. Oh, that makes Thank me you. so happy. Great. And I'm not sure if Rosie told you this, but we're in a duo called Hats and Heels. So you can imagine that oh, we're definitely yeah. digging this. That's great. 
<laughs> That's great. Well, speaking about uh, writing and obviously, you know, you mentioned the, the importance of connecting with people and that, that personal connection. So when you do write, how does it different, differ writing for people that you would call colleagues or that you know versus writing with somebody for the first time or a collaboration where it may be a cold call or a new individual? Well, I think of a cold call or a new individual as a chance to get to know somebody. For example, I just uh, started working on a piece for a flutist named Nancy Laupheimer in Arizona. And um, I hadn't met her before. And uh, she reached out to me to write a piece based around some of the feelings that we're all experiencing in pandemic life of mm -hmm. uh, isolation and in looking inward and missing, missing ways to make music with other people. Um, we spent a lot of time on Zoom just talking about ideas and how we were feeling and what kinds of uh, roles music played in her, in her life and how, um, how I could help create an opportunity for her to to make the kind of music she wanted to make. And so, yeah, I think if, if it's somebody I don't know, I, I like getting to know them. And there's going to be something, some crossover of interests between any two human beings, no matter how different they are. Mm. Um, and I think that's a lot like when we, um, we us composers, write for performers. I think, <laughs> I think a lot of the time what we're looking for is what that overlap is. Where do my interests coincide with your interests? And, mm -hmm. and in that shared environment, like what can we do in that space when you do get, uh, you know, obviously you you pull from the the connection of the human connection. But I'm curious, when you do commission um, for a new work, do you also pull from um, repertoire or other inspiration? So where do you get all this information to then create something new? So for instance, if you're going to do something for a quartet, do you pull from specific types of quartet influence, oh, or yeah. are you just kind of doing your own thing? You know, so where does all this inspiration come from? Well, I think that even if you're if you're inspired by music by other people, I think that there can be a human connection there where let's say I want to write uh, for Rosie, I'm going to want to know what kinds of, uh, what, what artists Rosie likes to listen to, um, mm. whether she's listening to The Roots or, or she's listening to um, the latest Isuri Quartet record or something like this. A lot of musical theater, a lot of Hamilton still at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That's a way of getting to know someone, like reading a book that's, that a friend lends you or, or just getting into the space of what their musical values are. And I think that it's also important for me to bring my values to the table, too. So mm -hmm. I'm always listening to things and trying to be really honest about when something really resonates with me artistically or with my feelings, uh, especially if it's something that doesn't make sense uh, or something <laughs> that no one else likes. I think mm. that's when um, that's when I really want to pay attention. How do you balance that? You know, balancing what the likes are of the, of the group that you're commissioned by and what they're listening to versus your own values versus also just your compositional style, if you want to call it that. So how do you balance all of those components to create what you create? Um, I think of it as a, a collaboration uh, or a conversation where we're, we're kind of zeroing in on something. Involving performers in what that conversation is, is important to me. And it's not like something that's important to everybody. I, I you know, I have mm -hmm. a lot of friends that that like to be isolated and have a an isolated experience that they then share with the performer to reflect on. Generally, I, I really like to to just kind of check in and check in and check in and modify. It's like sharpening when there are a lot of different things on the table and it's hard to pick. Mm -hmm. I think that there are two ways to do it. You can, you can be more of a collagist when you're <laughs> composing. Um, a good example of someone like that, I think, is Andrew Norman whose music is all over the place. Like it's almost more about the switching between uh, different things than about the things themselves. 
but I think another way is to just say like, I'm just going to dip into the river and whatever, whatever's in there at this moment is what's going to happen. And I think sometimes committing like that is necessary to, to just move forward. Talking of collaboration, we saw that you had a collaborative project with the Jack Quartet, mm -hmm. connected that with your uh, quintet, the LaBeouf brothers. Mm -hmm. can, can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Because that makes you into a, an ensemble of nine, I believe. Mm -hmm. That came about because uh, my brother and I started working on uh, collaborations with, with strings, uh, actually from an earlier record we did called In Praise of Shadows. And um, we received a grant based on that album to make another one. I'd becoming increasingly interested in, in contemporary classical music, how it overlapped with, quote, jazz music. Um, <laughs> and it, just in the coming together of, the, of, of those two communities within the music, I was actually really inspired by an album by Vijay Iyer called Mutations, in which he set up a lot of almost minimalist-esque improvisation games that allowed, I want to say, classically trained maybe, or musicians from that background to improvise in a way that didn't rely on things like chord changes and bebop, um, which I feel like is a hurdle for a lot of classical musicians that are interested in improvising. Um, so I really liked that idea, and it got me thinking about trying to create uh, opportunities for jazz-trained musicians to improvise in styles that they're comfortable with, and similarly for classically trained musicians to improvise in styles that they're comfortable with or, or to have rules that make sense for them. Trying to uh, work in that shared space uh, led to a whole bunch of uh, fun ideas. And, and Jack was actually a really great ensemble to engage in that style of writing because they are familiar with a huge range of, of different approaches to making music, from the nerdiest academic music to the most uh, kind of traditional classical stuff. Um, and me not really knowing what was going to happen, I thought that would be a great idea. And, and it worked out really well. They were wonderful, wonderful people to work with. Talking of strange collaborations, this is always my favorite question. What is the strangest commission or strangest gig that you've ever done? Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm sure there were some really weird ones. That I could think <laughs> about it if, if, I had, if I took a moment. Yeah, uh, one that I'm pretty excited about right now. It's not not such a not such a, a, a strange situation really, but um, it's one of the more uh, unconventional ensembles I've written for. Um, there's a, a piece I wrote called "Forbidden Subjects." Uh, is kind of a, a dedication to Louis Andreessen, who mm -hmm. I, I got to study with briefly when he visited Princeton in 2015. I want to say he, you know, you may be familiar with his piece he wrote called "Hoketus." which yes. uh, it, it's based on having two opposing uh, sides uh, in an ensemble that, that hawk it back and forth. And so I wrote a piece in this vein that engages with two rhythm sections, electric guitar, electric bass, and drum set, each on a side. And this wonderful ensemble called Real Loud uh, recorded it, and they, we made a fun video that critiques um, the way that companies... Uh, market towards children oh yeah it's, okay it's, oh wow it's super creepy and fun and and uh um I, I i got to work with with child actors um which i'd never done before and a bunch of my colleagues do cameos in the in the video but it was it was super weird because um basically when we shot this video we had to we had to like wear um wear creepy masks like i remember i had to <gasps> take apart some stuffed animals and like cut the eyes out 
and use fishing line to like connect them to people's faces so that when they were shredding on the drum set, like they would look like some some weird messed up childhood nightmare. I love that. That's we we also had a fun. We had a fun time with my friend Jenny Beck, who's another composer. Um, we made fun of some gender stereotypes where she had this super blonde wig and we got all these people to cut it and, and all these hands appearing around her from different directions. And, and uh, it was super fun to kind of have an outlet actually to, to kind of like let out some steam about some of the, the, the issues that we all have from kind of growing up in the 80s, the 90s or whenever and, and just being like forced to to take in these these stereotypes in commercials and and forced to take in all this advertising um, and the way it's messed us all up. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Did you say this has already come out or the video is coming out? Well, I'm talking about the video. I don't know when the video is going to come out, but but I just found out like literally five minutes before this interview that the record is going to come out on New Focus in yes. June. Okay. Okay. And the Great. ensemble is called Real Loud. All right. Real Loud. That story just got better and better. <laughs> to uh, switch our focus mm-hmm. a little bit, I'm going to push us into the direction of um, community engagement and education. Mm-hmm. So I'm actually going to tweak this question a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the academic environment, we notice that, you know, personally, I can go all the way through my education and never take a composition class and never take an improvisation class as a classical musician. Mm-hmm. Um, however, composers obviously are required to, to perform and, you know, learn instruments and so forth. So you were taking some of these classes as well. How do you think or do you think that performers could benefit from composition and specifically improvisational classes? Well, I mean... A lot of people think of improvisation as spontaneous composition. Yep. And and I'm I'm one of those people uh, trying to be fluent in the expression of ideas of compositional ideas um, is is really helpful. And 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 like I was saying earlier, getting to this space where magic happens in the music and you feel connected to people, I feel like that's also um, a a thing that that's I think easier to focus on when you're improvising. Because you mm-hmm. kind of you realize the effects of the music you're making immediately, mm-hmm. um, and you can respond to to other people immediately, and you can change what the music's going to be in the in the moment based on those things. So, um, I think it it allows for a, a lot of opportunities for you as an improviser or a spontaneous composer or composer or whatever um, to kind of get used to how um, the I, musical ideas interact with each other and with the, the different people um, so that when you're, when you're composing, maybe with a little more time in super slow motion, um, <laughs> you, you can kind of um, bring that experience to the table and, and say, oh, if I make this really loud noise here, then this is going to have this effect. Or if, I'm, if I you know, bend the pitch here, it's going to have this effect. And you can even create... Um, funny little conversations between different people though if you're notating everything and it's kind of like you're talking to yourself <laughs> i feel like that a lot these days in covid isolation oh covid yeah. times <laughs> <laughs> yep Gee, that that leads nicely mm-hmm. into the next question we're going to hop around a bit mm-hmm. um how has the pandemic shaped your compositional approach and, and performance approach but uh, how has this changed what you did before when when the pandemic hit and and you know i was trapped in my house i found that there was certain there were certain types of music that i wanted to listen to certain spaces that i wanted to inhabit 
but that mm-hmm. I needed music to help me with. I found that instead of listening to a lot of exciting music, um, like I would want to see at a live concert, I found myself wanting to listen to music that that's more gentle and introspective and inward looking. I spent a lot of time listening to Meredith Monk and Keith Jarrett, um, Florangis, Angelica Negron, um, people like this who are maybe not trying to startle you with their music as much as invite you into their minds. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made me want to start writing music like that too. So that's been a that's been a big part of it. And and again, I think not being able to physically see people that I care about, it's been really wonderful to listen to those people because so many of my friends are musicians that you know if I if I if I miss Rosie, I can put on her music and then mm-hmm. feel like she's there in a weird kind of way. <laughs> Connections and people are like just a core to what you do. It's very obvious. And you mentioned a lot of connections to other composers and other musicians. What do you do to connect to your audience? Well, I I think that you know who who knows like what this abstract idea of audience is. I I, t- I tend to like to think that. If I take care of honesty in the music and and represent the people I like and the things I like, that those things are going to resonate with people that listen to it. So I tend to kind of direct, you know, when I direct ideas towards people, I think I'm I'm thinking on, in parallel with directing ideas towards an audience. Um, I think of that as uh, si- similar to what I was saying earlier, where, where it's, it's like a Venn diagram and to share ideas with the audience that they're interested in. Um, so I, I want to know what, what audiences are thinking about. But I, I also, I kind of have an issue with this, the idea of some ex- abstraction of this is what people want to hear. And I tend to try to just to base my ideas about what audiences want to hear on, on on the people I really know, on, on people that I talk to and on, on my, my fellow musicians and, and the things that I like to hear. I have been increasingly more aware of my responsibility to kind of be... Um, more socially engaged uh, or politically engaged. I don't think that my voice is one that needs to take up a lot of space in terms of uh, identity politics or the Black Lives Matter movement, but I do think that my awareness uh, attempts to learn more about myself and my history and the history of the people around me has, has been having an effect on, you know, things like what what I think the the world needs to hear, and and maybe what I have to offer, and trying to curate um, my interests so that making music that people have a reason to care about. I think I do, I do think about that quite a lot, especially with concepts like why should anyone care what I have to say. Sort of linking off that, but also going back to a discussion we had uh, towards the beginning of this interview. You are in the jazz, again, quote unquote, realm when you perform, which is obviously deeply rooted in black culture and black American culture. Mm-hmm. Can you discuss the role that the BLM movement has been playing in contemporary jazz circles? I don't think I'm really like, I, I don't think I'm really in a position to represent the jazz scene necessarily. Um, but I, I mean, I have certainly spent time talking to my friends about it. There's, there's actually, uh, I think a lot of people have different thoughts and are dealing with it in different ways. Uh, I think one thing that's really fortunate about having um, a background in, in in Black American music is that diversity within the jazz scene, at least in terms of there being a solid representation representation of Black people, is, is not as big an issue as it is in classical music. One of the privileges that I've been realizing, um, especially in recent years, is is how fortunate I, I fortunate I've been 
to just feel comfortable in that sphere and feel feel like a part of that sphere in a way, connected to people, to love people, you know, to, to know a lot of uh, people uh, that are Black and that will talk to me and will share their experiences. I mean, that's such a privilege. We hear, I think, a lot of people in the jazz community could probably tell you stories that they've heard their elders tell them about some situation where they were touring in the South and they almost got killed or they had to cancel yeah. a gig or this or that. And, and well, they're not even allowed into the gig, even though their name's on the billboard. Yeah, it's, the list goes on. I mean, yeah. and that's just, I feel like that's a thing that understanding that is is crucial to entering into the music in the first place. It's in some ways, when Black Lives Matter movement uh, in, in the death of George Floyd happened, uh, you know, th- there, were, there was a lot of work that had been done already, I think, for, for people engaged in that community. But mm-hmm. I think that it also shed light on all the stuff that, that hasn't been addressed or that maybe people are too comfortable to address, getting, getting too comfortable with feeling accepted and, and, and not looking at their privilege. And jazz had a, a, has a terrible history of oppression and racism, and, but also of freedom and flight and expression. And I think we need to remember that and, and keep remembering it. And that it's maybe uh, uh, tells us a lot about what we can do today. I mean, I found a lot of great role models in the past too. People like Charles Mingus and Jerry Allen, but also people like Dave Brubeck who were really in, engaged in civil rights movement. Those are the places that I've been going to try to understand our current time, trying to understand what other people have done when facing issues of oppression and racism. Honestly, I think as artists, or just as people, but being artists as well, just talking about this and bringing ideas to the mm-hmm. table is uh, just so important. So thank you for being willing to share your share your mm-hmm. thoughts with us. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. So, you know, talking with you, it's obvious that you, you know, have your fingers in a lot of pies, so to speak, between <laughs> the performance side of things and the compositional side of things, and then always connecting with people, which definitely takes time. And for me, it would take a lot of energy, um, <laughs> as well as, you know, trying to stay up with current events and, you know, ed- educating yourself on these issues. How do you have so much time for all of this? What do you do to not burn out? Oh, man. Time management is really hard for me. I, mm. I think it's one of the things I struggle with the most. I wish I could say I was always on time for everything, uh, but I'm always struggling with, <laughs> with deadlines and, and trying to, um, to do all the things that I want to do. Um, you know, I don't think I'm a very good person to ask about how to, how to do that. Um, I, I do think, though, that uh, what I can say is that I, I try to stay healthy. I try to exercise and to sleep. And I think that... Um, especially when um, there's a lot of hard stuff going on in the world. I, you know, I'm in- increasingly realizing that it's important to also make space to just be a human and mm-hmm. to not, um, to try, you know, try to make space to, to heal and to, um, to be um, calm. What's your go-to when you need a detox? Oh, I really like listening to ambient music and reading science fiction. Yes. There you go. Right. Or fantasy or something, something that's like not rooted in reality here. I just finished Dune a little while ago. My oh, boyfriend yeah. was like, you have to read this. And he's like four books into the series. I'm like, I just barely got through one, but it's good. It's Those just, are great. It's yeah. a lot. Oh, no, I, I just started the Dresden Files and mm-hmm. the Universe According to Bob. And both of them are really, really good escapes from the world right now. 
I'm in the middle of Mists of Avalon right now. Ooh, I, uh, I've not read that, but I have heard of it. So that's yeah. We no, we now have a book recommendation section. Of the book. <laughs> there you go. So. <laughs> Yeah. To detox. Here are some different the things. Detox. No, I think it's it's so important. We we have to do things other than music, otherwise your your brain just becomes oversaturated by something you love, but also something that is work all the time. So mm-hmm. talking of important things, um, what is the single most important non-musical skill that any young composer, performer, artist needs when they are just beginning their careers? I think just being empathetic and and being a good communicator mm. is so important. And the longer I'm alive, the the more I realize it in in every aspect of of life, uh, relationships of all kinds. <laughs> I think communication is is really important. And and to be empathetic and understand other people's perspectives, I think is really really important. I remember mm. as a as a young person in particular, like a lot of people saying, "You should." You should, you should listen to this. You should check this out and so on. And um, I feel like whenever somebody said that, I, 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 would, I would hear it as um, this is import- was important for me and I think you would like it. Um, mm. But I think that there are a lot of shoulds that I really wish I didn't listen to um, mm. because I think that the the sounds and the and the ideas and the art that you expose yourself to they kind of form who you are and you know what you allow inside i think um it's really it's important that it be something that you're drawn to organically and even if it's something that it's like a stepping stone like i really want to listen to weezer right now because i'm 15 and 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 maybe it's not going to uh inform my music when i'm 30 but uh maybe it, it's informed my sense of rhythm and enjoyment of dancing around and connecting mm. an experience to to a theory idea you know or something like this so i just i think that's really important would you be willing to give an example of a should that you wish you didn't follow i think yeah totally totally <laughs> let's let's go there um i think uh for example um when I was a kid learning about jazz, a lot of people, you know, would say you should listen to, I mean, the list goes on. I remember Bud Powell being one of these people. And I love Bud Powell, but I wasn't ready to love Bud Powell when I was 12, you know, yeah. I needed to, I needed to get there. And um, I actually spent a lot of time listening to Bud Powell records. And I, and I really liked, I really liked Bud Powell. And I really like those records, and I still remember all this, these solos and things like this. But, but I think I didn't connect it to anything. What I connected mm. Bud Powell to was like going to jazz camp, and my you know old adult person teacher who I'd never heard play music, tell me you know to listen to this, and then going and doing it. And you know I didn't connect it to a, a life experience. You know I connected mm. to this sterile academic environment, and I think that if I had waited, I would have connected it to. Um, to people, you know, to people, to, to my friends, to jamming on the tunes, to going to, to these situations. And I don't think it was damaging necessarily. I just, I think it was wonderful actually listening to Bud Powell, but I think it would have been more efficient or maybe more musically honest for me to, to do that um, when I was ready. Um, mm. And I think uh, classical music for me was like this. I was not interested in classical music for the majority <laughs> of my artistic life. I studied 
you know, black American music and jazz and hip hop and funk and songwriting and electronic music, basically everything else. <laughs> and then and then I was like, okay, now I, now I'm starting to get interested in in classical mm. music, which actually was more like contemporary music. Mm-hmm. I mean, I still I have to I don't know if I'm ever going to be ready to listen to like Mozart. <laughs> I, Having played the concerto many times over, I, I understand. I like the minor. I like oh, I like the, the Mozart, requiem. Oh, the flute and harp concerto. I feel you. <laughs> I, I know some people hate that. You know, I I'm gonna get flack for saying that. Yeah. No, not at all. I have so many. I have so many friends who are going. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mozart's cool too. Like I respect that music. I respect. I respect him for sure. Um, but like I, I don't authentically feel that. I don't want to like put it on and read yeah. sci-fi novels. <laughs> I'd rather listen to Meredith Monk or Bud Powell or um, or Keith Jarrett or something like that. Um, Absolutely. Oh my goodness, that's uh, that's well, made cool. my day that you said that. <laughs> Let's go back to the delight. The wonder that is coronavirus that is still taking over mm-hmm. the entire world. Uh, how has your work changed with the transition to everything being online? I know you've mentioned the not having the closeness of um, actually talking to someone face to face, but have you taken any positive experiences from uh, the isolation of COVID-19? Absolutely. Um, one thing that I've always been very interested in in music is kind of... Um, the relationship between, you know, recording and performance. And I feel like when, since we're all isolated, um, you know, there are these restrictions on how we can collaborate and how we can make music together. But, uh, I, you know, within it, within every restriction, there's freedom to find stuff, you know. I've always been really interested in rhythm. Um, a lot of my research at Princeton has been based around rhythm, particularly around gridded rhythms. And, and how different grids can, can interact and how they can, um, poly, polyrhythms can, and fake polyrhythms can kind of interact and implying different feels over, over each other. I mean, I think that stuff is so cool because it allows us to kind of dance to two beats at one time or dance to a shifting beat. And sometimes they're moving around. I, I love that stuff. Um, it's like mind candy for me. And I feel like with remote collaboration, suddenly everyone is is working with click tracks. And, and I've heard a lot of people kind of, oh, I hate recording to clicks, it's so not musical. But it's also a huge freedom to be able to compose in certain ways. Um, mm. We can be much more mm-hmm. detailed with, with uh, the way interlocking rhythms work when we're working with grids. Or we can use different click tracks within the same piece for different people, um, which of course has been done before, but I feel like we're... Yeah we're in a place in society now where it's, it's, it's going to be uh, uh, a big focus for a lot of people. It's going to maybe progress uh, in, in more quickly than it would otherwise. And I'm very excited about that right now. Like the idea of, of recording an orchestra, uh, you know, but, but very close up and, <laughs> and very detailed. Um, and it allows for, for different spatial um, placement of the musicians too. Because when you're mm. when you're working in a production-based environment, let's say people recording in their bedrooms, you're going to get a really dry studio sound, and you can place it, you know, all the way to the left or all the way to the right, all the way back with lots of reverb, or all the way close with, with uh, without any reverb, and and it gives us this opportunity to kind of create impossible scenarios for 
um, for our music, uh, which is, you know, for our performance-based music, I think, I think that's really exciting. And I'm, I'm definitely uh, going, going along with that and, and discovering new things all the time. Well, I'm going to put a very little obnoxious shout out and say, you have a harpist and a bassoonist. For oh, hell yeah. Cool. You need us. <laughs> and a violist with Adam oh, I as do. well. Oh, I know I that. Do. Yes. Adam's a great violist. <laughs> well, you seem to be incredibly innovative. So my last question is going to push that innovation to the limits. If there were no barriers, so COVID, financial, location of individuals, anything along those lines. If there was absolutely no barriers, what project would you love to pursue? I feel like I'm living the dream already, to be honest. Ooh. I think that I, I feel I feel incredibly lucky to be able to make music with all, all the wonderful people that I work with. And and I think that just having enough stability to be able to to make stuff with people I care about, all I need, I think that's uh I, I've arrived at what I would consider success in life already just by having the space to make music with people. Well, congratulations. That's a wonderful answer. We haven't gotten something like that before and I really appreciate <laughs> I it. I love that. <laughs> that really makes my day. Okay. So do you have any um, anything that you want to shout out, any projects that you're doing aside from your Grammy for your consideration that everyone should uh, vote for you and make sure you're actually nominated. But do you have any other projects or things that you want to shout out? And obviously all your socials and your website will go down in the show notes. Thank you. Well, I'm really excited about a project that's coming up with Acropolis Reed Quintet and my friend drummer Ooh. Christian Newman. Yes. It's kind of looking at American identity and how it's changed over time. People like Aaron Copeland and, and uh, Gershwin obviously think about their identity as Americans in different ways than Mingus or Jerry Allen. Um, and I just, I feel like as uh, somebody who considers all those people important strands in my musical DNA, I, I feel like looking looking at how they've addressed American identity in their music has been really interesting, especially nowadays. Mm. So mm. I've been doing that, that with this piece. That's what, that's what I'm really excited about. And uh, I'm excited about Lake George. I'm working on a piece for, um, yes. for Arcs Duo in Barbora. <laughs> A triple concerto, um, which is going to be uh, hopefully premiered this coming summer. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at SoundweaversCast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosanna Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Pascal LaBeouf and performed by Barbara Kolarchova, Todd Reynolds, Sarah Caswell, Jessica Meyer, Nick Fotinos, Kenneth Salters, and Pascal LaBeouf. On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks.